This morning, what I want to do with all of you is teach you a verse. Let's call it maybe uh, adult Sunday school. I, I know because I have a few out in the parking lot right now. I know that there are kids locked up in a minivan probably right now. It's not a great situation. It's really not. Uh, but we're going to do our best this morning to try and maybe do some kind of Sunday school work, and this is going to be for everyone, I hope. And what we're going to do is we're going to learn a verse. What I want to have happen is that we all leave this morning with, with an understanding, with this impression in our mind, this is a great verse, maybe a verse we can memorize, learn, and focus on as we move through the next week, the next month, and whatever the uncertainties of the times are. But not only that, that we'll leave with the impression, what a great God. So our verse this morning is going to be Romans 8, verse 28. Romans 8, verse 28. I, know, I don't just want us to learn what it says. A lot of people know what the Bible says, but we want to learn what it means. So we're going to learn this verse, not just for what it says, but what it means. And here's what the text says first. It says, and we know that for those who love God... All things work together for good to those, for those who are called according to his purpose. I don't know about you, but that sounds kind of hollow. Right up front, I was sitting in a staff meeting on Monday, maybe it was Tuesday, and uh, the, the question came up at some point in the staff meeting, uh, how 2021 was going to look from a business standpoint and just life in general, how we're going to be able to function. We're still deemed essential as a business. And uh, someone said, well, could it get any worse? And I couldn't help but say, yes, of course it could. And of course, instantly labeled the pessimist. So I took a vote. I just went out into the outer office, the, the guys that I lead, and just asked for a vote. Hey, guys, 2021, better or worse than 2020? And I think the resounding consensus was it's going to be worse. That's what people think. Romans 8.28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. That's a really bold statement to make. Maybe Paul didn't know 2021 was coming. Maybe he didn't know 2020 was coming. We know, he says, he doesn't say we're pretty sure, he says we know that all things, I've heard people try to explain this away, like the trials in life are not included here. What he really meant was all these things, but he didn't say that. He said all things. He wasn't just talking about whatever he was just referring to, the Holy Spirit's power in your life and so on. No, he said all things. All things, we know that all things work together for good, for good. Well, I'm pretty sure there's some things in life that we would probably define as bad. I'm pretty sure you could think of a few right now. Not only that, you know, what else makes this very, very astounding, very surprising is, is the context of Romans 8. He has just finished talking about the fact the whole creation is groaning, and people, the children of God, are groaning. And he tells us back in verse 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is 
to be revealed to us. The sufferings of this present time. He's been talking about sufferings. He's been talking about groanings. In fact, he calls them groanings too deep for words. And in Paul's own life, we've been finding out from our study with Pastor Aaron in 2 Corinthians that Paul himself knew what it was to be so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Paul has known what it is to suffer to the point of thinking he's going to die. And in our own experience, I mean, how can you call funerals good? How can you call broken relationships good? How can you call divisions between friends, between family, between friends, or or between Christians, fellow Christians, good? How can you call sickness and disease good? How can you call lockdowns good? Seriously, how can you call lockdowns good? How can you call curfews good? How can you call something that is destroying lives and churches and running through like psychological health and spiritual health and relational health and economic health and so on. How can we call this good? How can we call robbing our very basic freedoms good? How can we call censorship good? It's amazing how quickly the tide is turned in just a few days. It hasn't taken long, but this is the word of God, Romans 8, 28. Look what it says. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. We're not going to say this flippantly. We're not going to say this lightly. We're actually going to wrestle with this. I hope we're wrestling with this. There's a lot of wrestling going on right now with all of us in our minds, in our hearts, as we wrestle with God over what's going on, what the future holds, what's going to happen to our children, and so on. And we're grasping at any kind of hope that we can find. But here's the qualifier. It's to those who love God. That's a perspective phrase. Perspective phrase. To those who love God. Kind of interesting because he's been describing this person all along. It starts in chapter one with the fact that these people in Romans chapter one were guilty, completely guilty. Chapter one and chapter two. They thought they were wise, they're guilty. They thought they knew better than God, they're guilty. Chapter two, they thought they were good enough on their own, they're guilty. And you get to chapter three, you find out there's no hope. There's no excuse. We're guilty. But God, in his love, sends Jesus Christ to die in our place so that he can righteously declare us just, not guilty, and dismiss us from his court. That's awesome. And that's where it starts. He justifies this person, this person that loves God. Why do they love God? It's a response word. It's a perspective. They're responding to God's love to them. Justified. That's what it how it starts. We still struggle with sin. Chapter six and seven, we find that we're still struggling with sin in our lives and we hate that struggle. In chapter eight, we find out that the Holy Spirit has come to help us and we're following after the Spirit and we're assured of the fact that we are adopted as children of God. We're assured of that fact. And while we groan and while we wait, our eyes are focused on God. So the only way to understand this verse, the only way this verse is not hollow is when we stop looking at it from our own perspective. See, most of us make the mistake of reading the Bible for what it says about us. And we don't stop and think about what the Bible actually says about God. That's what matters. That's what makes the difference. So we read chapter 8, verse 28, 
and, and wonder ourselves, what does it say about us? Well, it says that if I love God, then all things are going to work out. It's actually not saying that about us so much, so much as it's saying something or some things about God. In fact, we're going to look at four things. We're going to turn this verse vertical and we're going to look at four things this verse is saying about God and four things that give us confidence, give us confidence as we move forward into a very uncertain future. So here it is. Here's the first difference maker in this verse, and it's the fact that this verse is teaching us about God's calling and not our own terms. It's not on our own terms. It's about his calling, his calling. Notice what it says. It says it's for those, look at the end of the verse, who are called, called according to his purpose. Called by who? Called by God. In fact, if we kept reading into verse 29, we'd read for, Paul's going to explain himself, those whom he foreknew, he foreknew, so he knew us before we knew him, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. You didn't seek this life. You're not parked in the parking lot this morning merely because you want to be here. God called you first. God's calling. It's an identity. He called us. I wasn't seeking him. Neither were you. We don't naturally seek God. Romans is very clear about that. Paul is very clear about that in Romans. I don't love God to obligate him to work things out for me. It's not what the verse is saying at all. The second phrase, the first phrase, those who are loving God, might make us think that. But the second phrase, it's for those who are called according to his purpose, they deny that. In fact, they make it very clear, I wasn't looking for God. I didn't call to him. No, he initiated, he chose us, and he chose us for this moment in time. He chose us. And not merely because he looked at us and he saw all of our strengths and he said, well, they can handle this. No. He didn't call us to this time because somehow we've got some amazing superpowers that can handle this. He called us to this time because he wants to work out his purposes through us. It's completely about him. It's his calling. He has chosen us. That's a great privilege. And you trace this all the way through Scripture. This is not new to Romans. This is all the way through Scripture. When Noah built the ark, he didn't sit one day and think to himself, you know it would be a great invention. I don't think anyone's ever floated anything on water. I think maybe we should look into this. That's not how it happened. God called Noah. You see this with Abraham. Abraham wasn't looking for a vacation. He wasn't wondering about how can I invent some, uh, something called a suitcase. He wasn't looking to move, but God called Abraham. Samuel didn't even know who was calling him. He's just a boy, and he's trying to fall asleep at night, and he hears a voice. God was calling Samuel. All through Scripture, we see this. It doesn't start with us. And so we are called to stand for justice. We are called to stand for truth. We are called to stand for the gospel of Jesus Christ. But we are not called to panic. God's calling on our life reminds us he's in complete control of the whole situation. 
He predestined this. He foreknew this. He's not reacting to circumstances right now. He knew exactly what was happening. He called us. All right, that's number one. It's about his calling. It's not on our terms. He didn't sign any contract that we gave to him. He did all the calling, all the saving. None of this is by accident, and it is all on his terms. Well, here's the second thing this verse tells us about God and gives us confidence moving into the future. It's all about his purposes. It's all about his purposes and not my own ambitions or abilities. You see, I won't see God's purposes in 2021 as good until I'm willing to surrender my own purposes in 2021. I'm going to say that again because I think we have to wrestle with this. I will not see God's purposes in 2021 as good until I am willing to surrender my own purposes in 2021. We all have ambitions and we all have abilities. And God can take those abilities from us at any given time. But his purposes remain. Our purposes can be interrupted at any time. Remember uh, in Chariots of Fire when Eric Liddell uh, said those words to his sister, God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. You say, was that Eric Liddell's purpose in life? Was that his ambition in life? It could have been. He was an Olympic runner, did very well, won some gold medals. But eventually, Eric Liddell was no longer as fast as he had been. And what happened? Was his purpose gone? Did he live a purposeless life? No. He was living for the purposes of God that led him to China as a missionary. He ended up as a prisoner of war in a Japanese prison camp during World War II and ended up dying of a brain tumor. But all along the way, it didn't matter where he was, the purposes of God were good. He was completely surrendered to them. I wonder what our purposes are right now that we're struggling with. Could be ambitions for education, could be a career, could be athletics, could be our family, could be finances. This is a time when these things, these little idols, these very subtle idols in our heart get exposed as to how much hope we have placed in them. How much we were resting on those to give us some kind of fulfillment in life and we're watching them slip away and we're thinking to ourselves, this is not good. This is not good. And that's because we're still seeing it from our purposes. We're not recognizing that it's God's purposes that are ultimately good. Even our spiritual ambitions. Quite often we want to believe we're surrendered to the Lord, but we want to surrender to the Lord in the way that we want to serve the Lord. So whatever that might be, we're thinking to ourselves, well, I want to, I don't know, give to the poor. That's what I want to do, or I want to be a missionary. And then God doesn't set it up that way, and you don't have any opportunities to become a missionary, whatever it is. And we think to ourselves, I've, I've missed my purpose in life. Well, that's because it's, subtly it's your purpose and not God's. But God's purpose is eternal. God's purpose is beyond this life. Notice what it is. Verse 29. 
Let's keep reading just beyond verse 28. He says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, he purposed, to be, what? Conformed to the image of his Son. And again, we have it in verse 30. Right at the very end, those whom he justified, he also glorified. That's a future term given to us as though it's a done in the past. It's as good as done. That's basically what Paul is saying. We are on the way to being like Jesus Christ. That's his purpose for us. That's what he wants for us. And if that doesn't thrill your heart, that your heart, your character, your behavior, your responses, that God wants all of that to be changed to look more and more like Jesus Christ. If that doesn't thrill you, you haven't spent enough time looking at him. Maybe, maybe you haven't really recognized exactly what he's done for you. But the more and more we see the beauty and the glory of Christ, the more and more we want to be like him and the more we are transformed to be like him. That's God's purpose. It's about his purpose, not our own ambitions. Well, the third thing this verse teaches us about God and his, uh, his doing his character, all that he's up to right now, that gives us confidence this is all going to work out for good, is the fact that it's about his working and not our own control. It's about his working and not our own control. This verse is a lot more personal than we think it is. And uh, there, I'm afraid, and this is why, and this is going to be a Sunday school class a little bit, because I have to give just a slight little grammar lesson. So please follow with me here so that we understand what's going on. But listen to this. We do not control our own destiny. We do not, and circumstances do not control our own destiny. And the universe doesn't control our own destiny. There aren't a bunch of particles out there just kind of randomly floating around that are somehow all going to work out together for good. In the English version, it kind of looks that way, like all things are working together. That's not exactly what Paul intended to say. You see, if I were to say a sentence like, I'm driving the car, I'm driving, driving is the action word, driving. The car is the object that that action is being done to, right? I'm driving the car. The car is the object. The subject of that action word is me. I'm the one driving. I'm the one driving. I'm driving the car. So let's put that into Romans 8.28. The verb is working together. It's actually a word that we get our word synergy from. Working together. What's the object of working together? The object is actually all things. That Whatever is being worked together, it's the all things that are being worked together. And what's the subject of the verb? Actually, the subject of the verb is the person that we're loving. In other words, you could say it this way. In fact, uh, the New American Standard put it this way, and it's just slightly a little clearer for us to understand. New American Standard Bible said, and we know that God causes all things to work together. God causes it. It's far more personal it's less random in our minds when we understand it is God that is doing, that is acting upon all things and working them together for our good. God is up to something. It's not a random motion. In fact, the context backs this up. 
Because as we move into verse 29 and verse 30, we read, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Look at the focus. It's all on what God is doing. He predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who's doing all of this? It's not circumstances. It's not the universe. It's not just people on social media. It's God who is ultimately and mysteriously at work in it all, working it all together for our good. And it's not merely about what I am doing that counts. Now, this is not a call for laziness. It's not a call for inaction. It's not a call to not worry about personal sin in your life. That's not what it is because this is to those who are loving God. That's the context. For those who love God. Well, if you love God, you're going to stand against injustice. If you love God, you're going to obey him. You're going to passionately follow him. You are going to seek to defeat sin in your life. You are not going to allow injustice to be done to others. If you love God, you are going to be doing all those things. That's implied in this statement. So this is not a call to laziness to say that it's not merely about what we are doing. We try to control things as much as we can. We try to keep people safe in our life. I'm a dad, I know. You try to safeguard your kids so that, you know, they don't get terribly hurt. We try to control things and then things happen that are outside of our control. And quite frankly, sometimes it's even the things we do that are inside our control. Even the things that are within my own actions, God is never reacting to them. He's not a cosmic chess player deciding, okay, you made that move, I'll make this move, and so on. That's not what's going on. All things, the things I'm doing, the things that are being done to me, he's working all things together for good. He's working all things because God is ultimately sovereign. He's over all. He reigns over all things. Erwin Lutzer, who was the former pastor at Moody Church in Chicago, he wrote in one of his books, One Minute After You Die, he wrote, he said, listen to the conversation at almost any funeral and you will hear some if-onlys. If only we had the doctor sooner. If only there would have been ice on, if there would not have been ice on the highway. If only we had noticed the lump sooner. If only they had operated. If only they had not operated. Then Lutzer says, let me encourage you to take those if onlys and draw a circle around them. Label the circuit, circle the providence of God. The Christian believes that God is greater than our if-onlys. His providential hand encompasses the whole of our lives, not just the good days, but the bad days too. We have the word accident in our vocabulary, but he does not. He will take care of every aspect of believer's life, and he will use it ultimately for good. Yes, he will use our sin and our failure for good. He will use our sadness and trials for good. He will use our government, as evil as it might be and as immoral as it might be, for good. He will use our neighbors. 
even ones that dump nails on the driveway, for good. He will use our pleasure and our praise for good. Joseph clearly said this at the end of Genesis when he was speaking to his brothers about all the evil they had done. And he said, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring about that, uh, many people should be kept alive as they are today. There's so many stories of this in Scripture. The book of Ruth. It's actually the book of Naomi. But the idea is Naomi, at the beginning of the book, she's gone away with her husband and so on, and she's suffered great tragedy. And she comes back to Bethlehem at one point, and she says, don't call me Naomi, but call me bitter. Call me bitter. That's my new name, because God has dealt very bitterly with me. By the end of the book, we understand what was going on. God was mysteriously working through all of that for good. And the good was he was setting up the family line, not merely for King David, but he was setting up the family line for King Jesus. So stop and think about what is going on with, with Naomi when she says, and she's looking at her present circumstances here and now, and she says, this can only be bad. This can only be bad. God has dealt bitterly with me. This is so painful. And she doesn't recognize the great mystery that God is working all of this together, leading it one step at a time towards King Jesus coming into the world and interrupting time and history and turning the world upside down and setting up his kingdom and dying for sinners and bringing people to himself. It's amazing to see the contrast between the two. God is working for good. You see this when Jesus tells Peter before he betrays Jesus, he says, you're going to betray me three times tonight. But I've prayed for you that when you have repented, when you have turned, that you will strengthen your brothers. In other words, what's going to happen to you tonight is bad, very bad, but it's going to be used for good. It's going to be used to mold you, Peter, into something you were not before so that you can be used. His purposes, his work, and finally, it's about his definition of good and not our own desires. This verse reminds me to stop and consider the fact that maybe I don't know what's best for me. Maybe I don't know what is truly for my good. I mean, look at our North American society. Look at our outlook. Look at the way we flippantly say things like, yes, this is my forever home. It's your forever home. Forever, like how long forever? These are the kinds of words we use in North America right now. And if I could stand at a buffet line and be able to choose my life experiences, my career, my family, my country, my finances, and etc. cetera. We, we've got it all laid out, don't we? We know just how many kids we want to have, and we tell everyone about it. We know who we want to marry. We have it all, and it's not wrong to make plans, but it is wrong to think that all of those plans are the best for us. And to strive after those, and when they're interrupted, and when they don't happen, suddenly the whole world collapses on us. 
That's called idolatry. If I was honest, I would avoid any bad experiences. I would avoid the police showing up at our door every week. If I was honest, that's what I would do. No pain, no poverty, no loneliness. I would love that. It would be health and wealth all the way. Yes, I would name it and claim it. I would do all those things if it were up to me. But sadly, sadly, that's not the gospel that Jesus offers me. That is not the truth of what God is up to. It's another gospel. The idea that you can name it and claim it and just pray for it and you get it. And if you didn't get it, you didn't have enough faith for it. And that health and wealth are signs that God is blessing you. Or success in business is a sign that God is blessing you. That might be true, but it might not be true. That persecution is somehow a sign that God is against you. Not necessarily true. That's a false gospel. You see Paul chained between Roman soldiers, writing about how sure he was that God loved him. You say, seriously? How are you sure of that? You've had everything stripped away from you. I'm sure of that because Jesus died for me, period. That's it. So what is good? What is truly good? In our, our dim view of things, we have a diminished view of what is true quality. But he tells us what's good. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to what? To be conformed to the image of his son. He also says in the end that those he justified, verse 30, he also glorified. Well, there's a word. It's not about our glory. It's about God's glory. It's about the fact that we reflect the glory of God. What is truly good is to be made like Christ. What is truly good is to have the repentance we were hearing about last week. Godly grief, godly sorrow over sin. What is truly good is when sinners' souls are saved from eternal judgment and turned from their sins and their self-destructive ways. What is truly good is our endurance in the face of suffering. And this is not automatic. I know of Christians who just want to die and go to heaven so they can be flipped over to be like Jesus in a moment painlessly. That's not the way God set it up. That's not the way he set up our sanctification. Back in Romans chapter 5, Paul said, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Why do we do that? Knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. What is Paul saying? That true goodness in our hearts and in our lives is not automatic. It comes through suffering. It's necessary to suffer. It's necessary so that we begin to reflect the glory of God. 
It's necessary that our issues, our flaws, our weaknesses, our sin, our pride that are tucked so deep in our hearts are brought to the surface and we experience unique forms of pain and suffering so that they can be exposed. And having been exposed, we can run to Christ and seek his deliverance in our life, seek his power in our life. It only comes when we understand our own weakness and our own vulnerability. That's true goodness. You know what would be truly good in 2021? Many souls being brought to Christ. The church being enlarged, whatever form it looks like. If it's underground, it's underground. People repenting of sin, of watching God work. We have a front row seat to watch God work in the lives of even our antagonists. Those who are against us, we have the privilege of watching people like Saul of Tarsus who one day are applauding the death of Christians and the next day are praising the Lord Jesus Christ. That would be truly good. Be truly good if I was made more like Jesus in my role as a father, as a husband, as an elder, as a pastor. That would be truly good. So where does this leave us? It leaves us with a lot to wrestle with. It leaves us with a plea to live a life that is totally surrendered to God. Maybe the fact that this last week has kind of unraveled us a little bit. And even the circumstances, just what we read in the news and you know how we're being clamped down and freedoms are being slowly stripped away. And we're going to stand against that. We're resolved to stand against that and do whatever we can, but we are not going to panic. We are not going to panic. We are going to live a life totally surrendered to God, understanding that for those who love God, he is working all things together for good for those who are called according to our purpose. It's not very long after this, you get to chapter 12 and Paul turns at that point and he says what I'm going to say to you today. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, brothers and sisters, I appeal to you. I appeal to you, boys and girls, children sitting in your parents' minivan right now. I appeal to you that by the mercies of God, by the very fact that he's had compassion on you, loved you enough to send Jesus and is working all of history out for the salvation of mankind and for the glory of his name. By the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. A living sacrifice that is holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. The outcome of that is that we will be able to say confidently in this coming year and in these uncertain times, we will be able to say confidently, like Paul in Romans 8.31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, the implication is he's for us. If God is for us, and the gospel says he's for us. If God is for us, who, who, can be against us. Going to let some roofing nails stop you? Going to let some comments on social media hold you down? No, God is working all things together for our good. No, Paul says at the end of this chapter, 
in conclusion to it all, he says, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Notice the key is through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. I'd like to add to that if I could. Just keep the list going. Feel free to do this at home this week if you want. Just keep adding to that list. Nor a virus, nor a government, nor censorship, nor cancel culture, nor lockdowns, nor curfews, nor anything in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing, nothing will stand against the power of our God. So why not surrender to him? Why not allow his good to be our good, his ways to be our ways, and allow him to work all things together for good? 